Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. I don't know if you guys saw it, but Blake was voted, he said, please stop. He was voted the artist, uh, worship artist of the year uh, in Northeast Louisiana. How awesome is that? We didn't need a vote to know that, though, did we? Uh, I wish that, I don't know if there was a category for worship team, but they should have won it too. I don't know. But, you know, it's not about how talented they are. It's about how sensitive they are to the Spirit and the leadership of the Spirit. And that's, I think, what allows us to so quickly and easily fall into worship in this place. I'm very grateful for that group of people that just led us in singing and worship. Now we open the book. Let's get our Bibles out and go to John chapter 12. We're going to look this morning. Who are you going to follow? You know, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Those are the two most important questions of your life. Who am I going to listen to? Who am I going to follow? And I really think that there are only two options. It seems like there's a lot of options, but I think there's really only two. You can follow the crowd, which I would call the mob, or you can follow Jesus. You're like, wait a minute, what about I can follow my heart? Uh, Well, you know, the heart is not an independent thing. The heart is always being influenced, and typically the heart is influenced by the crowd. And so I don't know that that really gives you an extra option. I'll go back to the first two. You can follow the crowd, which is the mob, or you can follow Jesus. And and I I would say this, most people are going to follow the mob. Most people are going to follow the crowd. I think that's why Jesus said, you know, enter by the narrow gate. For the, uh, for the way is broad and the gate is wide that leads to destruction. And many there are who go that way, right? But the way is narrow and the path is straight that leads to life. And few there are that follow it. And so I think for most people, without really thinking, just by the collective nature of of what's in the heart of a person, the influences that are on that person, they just typically are going to go with the crowd. And that's a terrible decision. Because when we follow the mob, ultimately, we lose control of our lives. You're like, well, okay, what is a mob? Here it is. A mob forms when people become so consumed with something and in the process stop thinking individually and begin to think collectively. That's really the key to it. When everyone is doing it, but nobody seems to know why they're doing it, that's a mob. And by the way, parents, <clears throat> this should help you with your kids. When your kids come to you and say, but mom, everybody's doing it. You can just say, hey, don't ask me to let you be a mobster. Just because everybody's doing it is probably the worst reason in the world to do something, right? And there are all kinds of mobs. Uh, you can have White mobs, black mobs, Asian mobs. You can have mobs related to race. You can have mobs related to socioeconomics. You can have mobs related to some cultural position. It really doesn't matter. You can have any kind of mob because what can happen is whatever people become so passionate about, they lose their minds over, they gather together, they lose that independent thinking, and they begin to think collectively or at least move collectively. Then you got a mob, right? Here's the funny thing. You can even have a Christian mob. Uh, It's so interesting to me. You can have a Christian mob that isn't even really Christian. 
I mean, years ago, we did this thing, and maybe we still do it, see you at the pole. And back in the dark ages of youth ministry, when I was involved in it, um, that was kind of a way of a bunch of youth guys said, you know what, we need to ask our kids to make a stand on their campus so that they're not, into, uh, you know, invisible Christians who are just sort of mindlessly going down the hallway. And so we called our kids to step out of the shadows into the light, meet at the flagpole, and declare their allegiance to Jesus so that everybody in their school would see it. And man, that was a tough thing. And there weren't a whole lot of kids at those flagpoles in those days. And then it somehow became the thing to do. And all of a sudden, everybody starts showing up there. And it's like some people probably didn't even know why. They just didn't want to be left out. And so you've got this Christian mob at the flagpole. And, and so we see you at the pole. We saw you at the pole. And then they go off to college or they go into the career world and they forget all about the pole. You know, that 70% of the kids that saw you at the pole dropped out and never came back to church. You're like, why? Well, they weren't really Jesus followers. They were Jesus mob followers. John chapter 12, verse 9. The large crowd, that's how it starts, the large crowd of the Jews. And that word for crowd there uh, could also be the word for mob. In fact, that's how the word is used in Acts 21, 35. Same, same word translated mob. So the mob, this large crowd of Jews, uh, they're excited about the fact that Lazarus was resurrected. And so everybody's sort of electrified by the fact, if you remember, go back a couple of chapters, uh, Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus. He was sick. Jesus delayed a couple of days. He died. He gets there. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus is raised from the dead. And everybody is electrified by the news of that. And this what we see is the beginning of the formation of a mob. So this large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there, that's Jesus, and they came. Now look at this, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And so everybody wants to see the dead guy and the prophet that brought him back to life. Jesus in that moment was a rock star, and Lazarus was the lead guitarist. Or to put it in the modern vernacular, Jesus was Taylor Swift and Lazarus was Travis Kelsey. <laughs> and some people didn't even know why they wanted to see him. It's just everybody did. And this massive movement that suddenly formed there around Bethany began to threaten the Jews, the Jewish leaders even more. Verse 10, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. They want to kill Lazarus too, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, look, we talk about believing in Jesus, and we got to realize there's believing in Jesus, and then there's believing in Jesus. And it's hard to define that. You know, you go back over to uh, John chapter 8, it says, Jesus therefore said to the many Jews who were believing in him, if you abide in my word then you are truly disciples of mine as opposed to false disciples. And so the Christian mob can seem very much like Christian followers because there is this core belief in Jesus, but it's more of just an intellectual agreement. It's not a commitment of life. 
And that's what we're called to. True followers of Jesus have a complete commitment of life. In fact, Jesus called it dying to self. I deny myself, take up my cross and follow. That's what it means to really believe. And yet these Jews were believing. The Pharisees got upset about it. Um, And on the next day, look at verse 12, the large crowd, there it is again, the mob, who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took the branches of the palm trees. This is why we call it Palm Sunday. And this is the Sunday before Good Friday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. He arose from the dead on the following Sunday. But Palm Sunday was also called the triumphant entrance. And so everybody is so enthusiastic, so excited, primarily about the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead, that they begin to chop palm branches, throw them in front of him as he comes into Jerusalem. They took the palm trees and went out to meet him. And look what they said, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And you might say, well, clearly this mob is following Jesus. Isn't that a good thing? I mean, what's wrong with following the mob if the mob is following Jesus? So let's start with this, because you've really got two choices. Who are you going to follow? You can follow the mob. You can follow Jesus. You're like, well, what if the mob's following Jesus? Let's talk about what it means to follow the mob, okay? Here's what's wrong with the mob. First of all, the mob is always restless. That's the nature of a mob. It's always restless. It's always hungry. It's always yearning. There's a yearning to the mob. There's, a, there's a, an anger. There's a, a, a resentment. There's a restlessness to the mob because something in them feels empty. And, and, and by virtue of that, they're always hunting, always. You know, when I think about what a mob is like, I think about these birds, you know, uh, in the early part of fall here in North Louisiana who tend to gather together, you know, those blackbirds, and, and sometimes they're lining the telephone poles. And, and then when they fly, it's, it's such a beautiful thing because they fly in harmony and they'll fly almost like a, a moving shadow that's shifting and shaping and it moves this way and then it turns and it moves this way. And, and I'm watching that going, which bird is in the lead? And how do they know where they're going? And as you watch it, it becomes apparent there is no bird in the lead, and they don't know where they're going. They're just going fervently because they're just moving, not with a single mind, but with a collective mind. There's there's no direction to it. And it's as if nobody's leading. It's like the restless dance of a mob of birds. The collective group takes on a mind of its own, and there's no telling where it's going to go. Skip down to verse 17. So the people who were with him, that is the true followers of Jesus, when he called Lazarus up out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. So they're sharing this story where they're telling people about what Jesus had done with Lazarus. For this reason also, the people went to meet him because they heard that he had performed these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. So the Pharisees gathered together. See, the Pharisees were, they were caught because they knew Jesus was a threat to their position. They wanted to get rid of him, but they were afraid of the mob. And so there was a big debate. How are we going to handle Jesus? And apparently the solution was, let's leave him alone until the feast is over. The mob dissipates and then we'll take care of him. But now the mob's out of control. And they're like, do you see this? Look look at what it says. The world has gone after him. And you stop and you back up and you say, well, why is the world following Jesus? Because Jesus said, the world isn't going to follow me. 
that's the broad way. Why, why is the world? And, and I think there are a couple of reasons. I think a lot of them were following him because in that moment, that was the thing to do. The thing to do was to follow Jesus. You know, you, maybe you've heard of Beatlemania. Well, this is Jesus mania. It's just the thing to do. But I think there were another group of people within that group, within the mob, who were so restless and hungry and longing that they had heard, hey, Jesus had raised this guy from the dead. And, and by virtue of that, they probably thought, well, maybe he can help me too. And maybe they were following him because their marriage was in trouble or their, their business was failing or their partner was addicted or their kids were running with the wrong crowd or fill in the blank. And by virtue of that, they had hoped that Jesus would fix their problem. Now, look, I get it. That, that's not, that is not a bad motivation for coming here, for coming to Jesus. I mean, you know, you know what got me to church? A girl. I came to church to make a girl happy. She was like, you can't go out with me on Sunday nights if you don't come to church with me on Sunday mornings. I'm like, okay, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. And so that got me into church. But even getting in, it, their day had to come where that changed to where my relationship with Jesus became primary and I gave my life fully over to Him. But as long as you're in the mob, you're going to be driven by want or need. And what happens when the mob needs a quick fix from Jesus and doesn't get it? What happens then? Well, here's the second thing about mobs. The mob is unreliable. The mob is restless and it's unreliable. Eugene Peterson in his great book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, wrote this. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It's terrifically difficult to sustain that interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ but there's a dreadful attrition rate. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generation of Christians called holiness. See, the big problem with the mob is the mobs never last. The new wears off, the flock of birds fly away. Only in this case, the birds didn't fly away. They turned on Jesus. You see, within five days of shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were crying out. Same mob was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And you're like, what happened? The short answer is Jesus didn't do what they expected. He, he didn't do what they wanted him to do. They needed that miracle. They needed that moment uh, of transformation that would suddenly fix everything that's wrong with them. And, and he didn't do what they expected. So here's what they expected. They expected, and this is the long answer, the Messiah, the son of David, was supposed to reinstate the glory days of Israel. That's what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to kick out the foreign oppressors. He was supposed to get rid of all of the, you know... Uh, despicable leaders. He was supposed to institute economic policies that would reusher in 
financial prosperity for everybody. In, in, in fact, he was supposed to make life easier and better. And Israel was supposed to, like the phoenix, rise from the ashes of centuries of subservience to foreign dictators. And yet Jesus kept talking about, my kingdom is not of this earth. In other words, he didn't seem to care about our kingdom. He kept saying things and arguing with religious leaders who they had throughout their lives been trained to respect. He didn't seem interested at all in money or economics, and he certainly didn't seem very capable to be a military leader. And so in short, Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. And that's when the mob realized Jesus is not a member of our mob. And let me tell you something. The minute the mob realizes you're no longer a member of the mob, they will turn on you. Look, when you, when you guys who are getting radically transformed and, and you're coming to Christ and you're giving up some junk in your life and you're surprised that the people that you've spent your lives with doing the things you always did with them, they don't want to hang out with you anymore. They don't want to spend any time with you anymore. And it can become hurtful, right? You just got to realize, they realize suddenly that you're no longer a member of the mob. And, and when you're not a member of the mob, they'll turn on you. Because here's another thing about the mob I want you to hear. The mob is senseless. It's senseless. You see, every individual in that Jewish legalistic system knew it wasn't working. They knew. They had the law. They had tried to live up to the law. They knew they couldn't do that. And they knew this thing's not working. My life is still as sinful as ever. My guilt is still as great as ever. My sense of shame is probably worse than ever. It's not working. The Pharisees are ramming this stuff down my throat. They're telling me I've got to do this. I've got to be that. And all I do is lie about it. They knew it wasn't working. And yet within one week, within one week, five days, of declaring Jesus to be the new king and Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had given up on grace and returned to the system that they hated. Why they do that? And then watch what they did the next Friday morning, verse 15. Uh, skip over to John chapter 19, verse 15. And this is on the day of the crucifixion. Pilate brings Jesus before them. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. They, look, they didn't just say kill him, which is interesting to me. There was no more brutal way to kill a man than crucifixion. They were so enraged with Jesus at this moment that the same mob that said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, wants him killed by the most horrific process available in their time. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? I mean, go back and read the text. It said in Palm, Palm Sunday, they were blessing him because the new king has come. And he's like, you want me to kill your king? And the chief priest answered and said this, look at this. We have no king but Caesar. And I read that and I go, what? No king but Caesar? Seriously? Really? Is that what you just said? Because that makes no sense at all. Every single Jew of that generation hated Caesar. He hated the Romans. 
They'd rather do anything than sub submit to the Romans. And yet here in this critical moment, the mob has become so mindless and senseless that they yell out the very thing they hate. We've got no king but, but Caesar. And you know what that just tells me? Mobs are senseless. I mean, open your eyes. You can see it in the world around us, right? You, it's so clear with this whole invasion of Israel and Hamas and all of that. Over the last three or four weeks, it's just been mind-numbing, the, the idiocy of, of this population of Western world. It's, it's hard to even fathom. You know Hamas is a terror group, right? You know they've been on the terror list for years. You know that when Hamas fired the missiles into Israel and went in and invaded Israel, you know that they didn't target military targets. They didn't target government buildings. They targeted soft targets like elementary schools and a music festival. You know that, right? <clears throat> and yet, in the streets of America and really all over Western Europe, it's crowded and crammed with people supporting Hamas. I read recently that on the Steps of the U.S. Capitol, the cry, Allah Akbar, was heard. Allah Akbar. You know that that was the last words of the terrorists who flew the planes into the World Trade Center. You know that's the last thing they said, right? And here's what's so senseless about it and mindless. There are certain groups within the LGBT community who are in support of this. And I'm like, I want to call them and say, you realize that if they were to take power, that you would be among the first people that they would kill. Feminist groups coming out in favor of radical Islam, and I'm like, were y'all not alive during the fall of Iran? Maybe that's the problem. You don't remember how in the fall of Iran, in the rise of the Ayatollah, that women were, were beaten back into the Stone Age. And you're like, how can these things be? And then you... Realize it makes no sense because mobs are like that. Christian mobs don't make any sense either. So what's wrong with the mob? Well, it's restless, it's unreliable, it's senseless. Let's talk about your other choice. Let's talk about what's right with Jesus, all right? I'd rather do that anyway. This passage reveals some things about Jesus that might help us. First, he's reliable. You know, this whole thing was staged, right? This whole coming to Jerusalem thing, this whole uh, Palm Sunday thing. You know, that was staged, right? Jesus set that deal up. He intentionally, deliberately raised Lazarus from the dead to create the hysteria that would produce the enthusiasm that would foster what happened on Palm Sunday. It was a setup deal. It was staged. But maybe what you didn't know is that this... The script for this stage was written centuries earlier. Let's read it. Verse 14. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a, now notice this, donkey's colt. Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem on a donkey. He came in on the colt of a donkey, an unridden colt of a donkey. Now, I, was, I was reading Ray Stedman on this, and Stedman grew up in Montana, and he used to break horses. And he said one time on a dare, somebody told him to jump on an, an unridden donkey colt. 
And he said, I jumped on it and I was on it about a second and a half. That thing lost its mind and next thing I knew I was back to the ground, you know. And I thought that was interesting that Jesus got on a donkey that was never ridden and yet something about the supernatural essence of Christ on that donkey, that donkey never bucked him off and he rode it. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So he's riding a donkey. That's not an accident. Notice when you read that in verse 15 that it's in all caps. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on donkey's coat. That's all caps. You know why that's all caps? It's to remind us that that's a prophecy of the Old Testament. And so we need to go over there and see what that prophecy said, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation. Humble. Look at this part. Mounted on a donkey. Not just any donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know when Zechariah wrote those words? Do you have any idea? Zechariah wrote those words 550 years before Jesus sat on that donkey. I'm trying to think of an equivalent. You, you, you've got to be, what are we, back in the 1480s, something like that, 1470s? So it's like if Leonardo da Vinci wrote some very specific thing about something I would do in 2023, and then I just happened to do it. Are you tracking with me? This thing was staged, but the script for it was written at least five centuries before it happened. In fact, if you, if you understand the, the flow of, of Hebrew Scripture and how it all ties, everything in the Old Testament is tied to the coming of Jesus. He is the subject of the entire book. And so everything written millennial before Christ all culminated in these moments that we're reading about right now. You're like, so what? Well, you know what that does for me? That's what I call precise reliability. Not like the unpredictable restlessness of a, of a senseless mob. You know, the mob is unreliable. Jesus is reliable. And Jesus is approachable. He didn't, you know, I love this. He didn't step out of a Lamborghini. When he came into Jerusalem, he wasn't, he wasn't in a Ferrari. He didn't come in on some shiny black helicopter with... You know, his name in bold letters on the side, the Jesus copter. He didn't land and do all that. He wasn't even in a chariot, if you want to use the, the means available to him at the time, like Caesar, who rode into Rome with his conquest in tow, showing everybody what a powerful, great man he was. He didn't even ride a horse. He's on a donkey, and it's not even a real donkey. It's a baby donkey, and he's on this donkey. I picture his feet almost touching the ground and just how absurd the image is. But go back to Zechariah, and it tells you why. He's humble. And you know what that means? He's approachable. And here's what I love about it. You can come to him even before you align with him. I think a lot of people think, I've got to clean my life up to come to Jesus. It's just the opposite of that. You come to Jesus, he'll take care of your life. And the beauty of it is, is that even while we were yet sinful, even when we hated God, he loved us. And so he's approachable. Look, 
That's not true with a mob. Never approach a mob unless you are perfectly aligned with the mob because mobs are dangerous. And the third thing is Jesus is consistent. Unlike the fickled mob, Jesus knew exactly why he came and what he came to do. He came to die. Look over at verse 27. I, th- I thought this was interesting because we always celebrate Palm Sunday and you know that victorious day of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and how wonderful that must have been and how Jesus must have felt about that. Maybe you didn't know that while everybody else was celebrating, Jesus was grieving. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. This is Jesus talking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You see, Jesus is looking down the barrel of the crucifixion. Yeah, he's five days away from it. By Friday morning, he'll be nailed to a cross and he'll die the most excruciating death imaginable. And he sees all that coming. So while everybody around him is excited, Jesus knows this is all just part of the story, part of the plan. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then there's a pause and he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He knew what his coming meant. And he knew what this was all about. Can I I pray, God, save me from this hour? Father, save me from this hour? No, I remember that's why I came. And so he prays again, Father, verse 28, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd thought it was an angel. And Jesus said, it was for your benefit that you heard those words, not mine. But then... Look what he said, verse 32. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And here's why he said it, verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he would die. You see, what you may not realize is he was born to die. And when it came time to die, he died. Willingly, intentionally, And all he had left to do was die. He never wavered or veered from that purpose. He was consistent. And when he died, he shattered the power of sin. You see, his death was a sacrificial atonement for your sin. And on the cross, all the sins that all humanity would ever do were placed on Jesus. He became the sacrificial lamb. He became your substitute because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Every one of us deserves death because the punishment for sin is death. So Jesus took our punishment upon him on the cross. Theologians call that substitutionary atonement. He substituted for us. He died willingly, purposefully, consistently, faithful to his calling throughout his life. He died for us. And when he rose again, he broke not only the power of sin, but the power of death. So that those of us who place our faith in Christ have been found forgiven and freed and set free. And I've been given the gift of eternal life. He shattered the power of death, y'all. So the question is, who are you going to follow? You're going to follow the mob? You're going to follow Jesus? It seems to me to be a simple solution. And yet here's the craziest thing. We know that the mob is the wrong choice, but most people are going to follow it anyway. 
Don't be like most people. Stake your life on Jesus. You're like, well, how do I do that? Cry out to him. He said, everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. By grace, you're saved through faith. All the grace that you'll ever need to cover all the sins you've ever done, all the sins you do, all the sins you will do, was made available on the cross, and you receive that by faith. Just God, best I know how, I'm just going to call out to you. I admit my need. I confess my sin. I receive you as my Savior, and I commit to following you. I'm not even going to follow the Jesus mob. I'm going to follow Jesus. Have you ever made that your commitment? Well, why don't you do that this morning? You know, you can do that right where you are. So let's pray together. And as we pray, I want you to consider your relationship with God. Are you sure that you're a follower of Jesus? I'm not talking about a follower of the Jesus mob. I'm talking about a follower of Jesus. Have you come to a point in your life where you've given yourself fully over to him? If you've not done that, would you just pray this prayer? Jesus, right where I am right now, I give you my life. I choose to follow you. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to follow the crowd. It's so easy just to be caught up in the hysteria of the moment and just be carried along. And the crowd is, is so dangerous because it's just so restless and it's so senseless and it so easily turns. And so, Father, I pray for those that need to stake their lives on something that's eternal, that's reliable, that's approachable, that's consistent, the name of Jesus. That Jesus' name would be the centering power of their life. And we thank you for the cross. And we thank you for the gift of grace. And we, we thank you that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so, Father, we cry out to you. Be glorified in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.